0: Amen. Wonderful. Well, here we are at last. We've reached the end of the Thessalonian letters and um, it's been a remarkable time for me personally, just devotionally going through uh, Paul's corpus, Paul's letters, Paul's books, and um, this is now, uh, oh boy, I don't know how many of his books, I've uh, letters I've preached up to this point, but this is uh, this has been a really special time for me. It's kind of a bittersweet thing. Uh, we come to the end of this letter and uh, we depart from the, theolo- the at least the message of this letter. But I want to remind us today of the theology of the Thessalonian letters. And so uh, today's sermon is entitled, The Timeless Theology of Thessalonian, Thessalonians, The Timeless Theology of Thessalonians. And I'm very grateful as well. I'm always reminded when I come to a milestone like this that uh, I didn't do it alone. Uh, you were here with me for the whole trip and uh, you are to be commended for your patience. Be quite honest, sometimes I come back next week and I'm surprised anyone's still here. But uh, I'm very thankful that uh, I, I, I'm I not preaching to just Pastor Lynn or something, you know. Uh, but you guys come and support and uh, I need your support. i, I I feed on your support. I, it strengthens me and encourages me to go on, and uh, you have been that for me. So thank you, and uh, I'm, I'm very uh, uh, grateful for the opportunity to preach God's Word, and certainly anytime I'm in a Pauline epistle, uh, it's just a glorious, glorious adventure. Uh, we are leaving uh, the Thessalonian letters, of course, and then after this, uh, Pastor Lynn, uh, Brother Brian are going to be preaching uh, a few sermons uh, of their own. And so I want you to support them uh, just like you supported me throughout Thessalonians. Please come out and support these brothers. Uh, they're giving me a little bit of a break, which is really not a break because I'm just going to be preparing for the next book. But uh, uh, it's a much needed uh, a time for me of preparation. And I have decided uh, to make a commitment and preach through the book of Isaiah. And so, you know, I've decided to do that because, uh, kind of for multiple reasons, and I'll talk more about that when we get there, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like put your money where your mouth is kind of time. I talk so much about the Old Testament, you know, it's kind of like, well, when are you ever going to preach it kind of thing? And, you know, in typical heritage grace fashion, some pastors tinker around with the Old Testament, might take like Book of Jonah or something, you know, three chapters. I do Isaiah, you know, into infinity, with Isaiah, 66 chapters. And so uh, I covet your prayers, to say the least. I really covet your prayers that the Lord will give me uh, the vision and the endurance uh, to preach to that. I'm going to actually tell you uh, when I come back to the pulpit and we uh, begin Isaiah, I'm going to actually lay out a sort of a a plan of how we're going to go through this book how are we going to cover these 66 letters or is the Perusia going to take place before i'm done because <laughs> when we're in chapter 37 or something of isaiah it may feel like that right so how are we going to get through this book in a timely fashion uh and no i'm not listening to some of the counselors in the church that come up to me repeatedly telling me take your time preach as long as it takes if it takes 66 years just take 66 years you know it's not going to take 66 years i promise you maybe four or five maybe four or five and i won't feel bad either because my heroes some of the pastoral heroes like macarthur and piper and some of these great men of god you know uh, uh macarthur took eight years to preach through luke uh Eight years for Piper to preach through Romans. And so if I can make it out of Isaiah in five years, not only are you fortunate, but, you know, uh, that would be a tremendous accomplishment uh, for me. So that's where we're headed, and I am absolutely excited about that. I'm I'm overjoyed, overwhelmed, trying to wrap my, my brain and my soul around that book. But today we are not done. We have one more section, glorious section here in uh, in Thessalonians. So why don't we pray one more time, ask the Lord to help us and and to bless our time together in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again, Lord. We We're, we're grateful for Your faithfulness. We thank You that You are faithful to Your Word, You are faithful to Your ministers, and You are faithful to Your people. And Your Spirit is pleased, to uh, uh, to bless your word and to breathe life upon your word, so that it ministers to each and every one of our hearts, Lord. And so we give you all the glory today for this glorious book and these two letters, First uh, and Second Thessalonians. May you uh, leave an indelible mark in our souls as we depart from. Uh, this Pauline text. Lord, thank you for the rich time that we've had in it. And now we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of the glorious truths, the glorious doctrines, and the glorious theology that we have uh, surveyed as we've gone through these letters. And we pray that you would uh, drive these truths home to our hearts so that they will have that timeless quality uh, to each and every one of us. So minister minister to us now, Lord, by your Spirit, we pray, we ask. We seek your face and we seek your help. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in thinking about this letter, I'm going to do more than just look at the, the uh, final salutation here. I'm actually going to go back. So we're going to kind of travel back in time a little bit. And when I say the timeless theology of the books of Thessalonians, the letters of Thessalonians, I want to zero in on on the key teachings, the key doctrines or themes of these letters. And I've zeroed it, or narrowed it down really to three themes. So obviously, there's a lot more than that, and there's many other things that I could have emphasized. But in order for us to really focus on the high points of the book, I want to mention eschatology, sanctification, and ecclesiology. Eschatology, study of the end times... And then sanctification, the study of how we are are to grow in Christ. And then ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, the study of the church. Because this is really what these letters provide for us, I believe, especially, and let me just say, point number one, eschatology. This is far and away the most important uh, point of these letters. This is the central doctrine of both letters, is the doctrine of eschatology, and we saw that. And uh, I will remind you that in this letter, the Apostle Paul has decided to focus on eschatology, not just simply because he wants to teach on eschatology, but because there's problems in the church regarding eschatology. There is false teaching that has permeate, permeated the church, and the body has been shaken by the teaching and the messages and even pseudo-letters by people uh, that... Uh, are purporting to be writing from an apostolic authority when they are not. And all of that has sort of led to a mass confusion, it seems, in Thessalonians. So much so that Paul has to remind them, has to reiterate, and has to ground them in the very things he has already taught them. And uh, that's certainly no surprise. Anybody that knows uh, eschatology, we need to be reminded constantly. We need to constantly ground ourselves Uh, in eschatology I mean let's be honest I think if I go person by person in this church many of you would say the doctrine that confuses me more than any other doctrine is eschatology some Christians avoid it altogether because it's so confusing they just don't want to get into it and uh, uh, thankfully, that was not Paul's <laughs> practice. He did get into it. So I want you to turn back with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, because there is where uh, Paul begins to really delve deep into the doctrine of eschatology. Now, remember, 1 Thessalonians, every chapter, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5, every chapter concludes with the second coming. And so every chapter, Paul kind of rounds out his thought by focusing our attention on the parousia. The second, the parousia is just the Greek word that means coming, which always refers to Christ's second coming. And so Paul, in chapter 4, decides to tackle the issue uh, straightforward. And, And what he does is he tackles the problem that's going on in this church Let's just read it together. Beginning in verse 13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. And so that is the catalyst, brothers and sisters, for us not to be uninformed, not to be ignorant of eschatology. It's not an option for us to study eschatology. If we want to be informed about the nature of the future, uh, we need to study it. And so Paul says, he says, uh, About those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And that's always a big distinction in eschatology, as uh, we'll go on to see. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him, uh, bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say, that you, by the word of the Lord, that we, uh, to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, and probably the most practical point of the whole teaching of eschatology, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the point of eschatology. The point of eschatology is that we should comfort one another. And so, as some in the church had concluded, the day of the Lord was more of a threat than a comfort because they were confused based on the teachings that they were hearing. Uh, what even happens to people who die in the Lord, Christians who have died and fallen asleep? What happens to them? Are they going to miss out on the kingdom of God when it comes and when Christ returns? Will they just not be around for the eschaton? And what will have they just gone into sort of a, of, of a world of uh, sort of uh, uh, soul sleep or something? Are they just, you know, has God forgotten about his people who have fallen asleep? Certainly not. Uh, That also should be, uh, um, it should make sense that that kind of question would be asked, because to us it's kind of silly. It's like, what do you mean? Like those who have fallen asleep in the Lord? Of course, well, they're going to rise from the dead and they're going to be resurrected and and they're going to be glorified one day. But you must understand, at this period of time, both in the Greek world and in the Jewish world, the doctrine of the resurrection is not fully developed. Even the Jews throughout the Gospels show great confusion as to their understanding of the resurrection. So their resurrection hope, their their understanding of what's known as uh, personal eschatology in other words what happens to you in the afterlife they were confused about that so uh, the, our doctrine of the resurrection cannot just be assumed into the text this is all being laid down and developed by the apostles and so that's one of the reasons for the confusion up to this point but as paul will teach us the day the day of the lord the the return of christ the these events leading up to the end these are not um, these are not a threat to any of us. Why? Because we are prepared. So turn to chapter 5. In chapter 5, he kind of he, he touches on this. Uh, look at what he says in verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, while they while they notice how he's sort of they, us, and they, right? He says, then the contrast becomes really clear. He says, For While they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction or destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. They will not escape. But you, brethren, and that's the all important difference in the teaching of the day of the Lord is that unlike they, that is the unbeliever, the teaching of eschatology is not a threat to you. He says, because you are not of darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light, sons of day. Uh, That's all imagery of the fact that we are in the sphere of salvation. To be a son of the day, to be a son of the light, means that you are in the realm of salvation. You are in His light. You are in His day, which is all about being saved. He says, We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. For the Apostle Paul, the whole uh, mass of humanity is asleep. Everyone around us. That's what Paul is saying. Everybody around us who is outside of Jesus Christ, as it pertains to eschatology, the day of the Lord, the second coming, everyone is asleep. They have no sort of... uh, they have no orientation when it comes to the, to the end times. They're not preparing for it. They are not prepared for it eschatologically. As far as they're concerned, it's just some kind of religious conspiracy that can be disregarded. But we do not think like that because we're not of night. We're not of darkness. So we are not asleep. He says, therefore, let us be alert and sober. You see that? So that's what eschatology is ultimately to produce in the church is to produce sobriety that we are awake because these eschatological events are real. And therefore, he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's ultimately what eschatology is all about. It is all about the hope of salvation. And so eschatology leaves us looking for the glorious return and the appearance of Jesus Christ. What does this hope look like? Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, he says, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, that is, alive, or whether we are asleep, that is, dead, at least our body's dead, we will live together with Him. Therefore, once again, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. That's so true. This is the practical application of the theology of eschatology. Uh, it's not that we just sit around and focus on all the controversial debate points. Is that uh, on a broader scale, eschatology is the catalyst for you and I to encourage the body of Christ. So when we're down, eschatology brings us up. When we're hurting, eschatology is a is like a healing bomb. It reminds us, yes, brother, sister, the outer man is perishing. You are suffering now, but be of good cheer because our hope is this, that Christ, when he returns, he will raise your body up. He will glorify, transform your body into conformity with the body of his resurrection and his power. That's our hope. The Apostle Paul, his entire life, was lived eschatologically minded. That's the way that it works. And it's practical, too. I mean, Trisha and I just had dinner with some friends uh, yesterday, and uh, we were talking about how messed up we all are, like physically. <laughs> we were Somehow, you know, in the conversation, we got around to talking about our aches and pains, just groveling, you know. and uh, And then we reminded ourselves of... Who cares? Like the outer man is perishing. It's okay. The inner man is being renewed. You know, we have a hope that, you know, beyond cancer, beyond back problems, beyond surgeries, we have a hope that it's going to surpass it all, right? And it's like that. What, what incredible hope for every single individual in here who will live all the way to the point, well, of death, meaning you won't see the return of Christ. I hope we do, but maybe we won't. And maybe we will live to the age where we get old and decrepit and our body succumbs to the fall. I've been thinking about that a lot, actually. I can't imagine myself laying in a bed, incapable of taking care of myself anymore. It's so old and your body's just racked with whatever, cancer or something else. Falling apart, there you are, just withering away. What's your hope at that point? Right. For those that have no hope, that's why he mentions in this uh, context, those who have no hope, because if your only hope is in this life, when you get to that stage of life or that can come early for some people, for many people. Where's our hope? Eschatology reminds us that our hope is in the glorious, triumphant return of Jesus Christ because he will redeem his people, he will deliver his people, and he will vindicate his people as he takes us home with him to heaven. But Paul also, in these letters, focused on another pivotal doctrine, and that's sanctification. Turn with me to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 4, the apostle Paul extensively taught the church about the importance of holiness and sanctification and so I thought I would just read what he said here again by way of reminder all this leading up to the final salutation but look at what he says here just by way of reminder if you weren't here for these first Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 he says finally then brethren we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God that's That's the whole realm of sanctification right there, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So it's never enough. We never arrive. We never get to a place. We never plateau. No matter what, you know, sinless perfectionist heretics say, we never arrive at a point of sinlessness where we no longer need these exhortations to excel more in our sanctification. Um. For you know what commands we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then that is sort of a general statement, overarching and uh, sort of a broad statement that covers all the Christian life. What is the goal in Christianity? Why were you saved? And then... When you're saved, why doesn't God just take you to heaven right there at that spot? Oh, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Like your own personal rapture right there at the moment. But why does he leave you here in the world surrounded by sin? or We could say the flesh, the world, and the devil It's because He wants us to walk in a way pleasing to Him. He wants us to excel in this. He wants us to be obedient to His commandments. And this is His will for us, our sanctification. And then He specifies, uh, specifically, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now understand, Thessalonians was a decadent city, just like Corinth. Uh, It was given over to immorality at every corner, every turn. He says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, that's your body, that your body should be possessed in sanctification, which is just another way of talking about holiness or being set apart for holy use. And he says, and honor. And he says, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so for the church, the Apostle Paul is saying, in order... For you to give yourself back over to lustful passions would be like you're living as an unclean Gentile who doesn't know God. And to not know God means you are not in covenant with God. You're not in covenant with God. But because we are in covenant with God, we are to pursue sanctification, holiness, passion. Here, the Apostle Paul agrees 100% with Peter who says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and following, that just as our Father is holy, we too ought to be holy in all of our conduct. Think about that. And also, as uh, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, where he says we ought to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That's what he's saying. The church, if the church is to survive, the church must pursue with all rigor, holiness, purity, sanctification, and to be lived out in fear and in trembling. That's why every church has so far to go. Because we never perfect this. We never arrive. We never achieve this perfectly. We always need the exhortation. Every year, every church service, we need to be exhorted toward this type of sanctification. Uh, If you jump down to Verse 7, he says, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So in other words, our very calling, our identity to be put into Christianity is a holy affair. Therefore, live like it. And then in verse 8, he gives this solemn warning. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now notice the connection there to the Holy Spirit. God who gives his Holy Spirit to you means God who gave you the sanctifier, right? And that the Spirit is the one who is sanctifying you. So you're rejecting the God who gave you, through regeneration and through conversion, gave you the divine person, the Spirit, whose chief purpose in your life and mine is to conform us, to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. You are denying Him, the very agent given to us to sanctify us. God also, uh, excuse me, Paul also reminds us that sanctification is not something that we do of our own. He's not, by calling for this radical sanctification, He is not calling us to jump on the treadmill of good works and to try to achieve some sort of spiritual status on our own. Turn with me to chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God is the one who is going to sanctify His people from beginning to end. He made you holy by putting you into the faith and he's going to perfect your holiness when he consummates your faith. Verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Wow. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame. When is that? going to be obtained? When is that perfection going to happen? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, regeneration, and he who will bring it to pass. That's glorification. So the one who regenerated you, converted you, brought you into salvation is the one who is going to glorify you, perfect your sanctification, and bring you to consummation in heaven. Remarkable. There's one more doctrine that I think is important here also that the Apostle Paul touched on in these letters, and that is the doctrine of ecclesiology. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. It's very important. It's everything Paul ever did. It's everything Paul ever labored for. He wanted to make sure that the church had a proper view of itself, a proper view of of what a church is. What is a biblical church? Everything down to the leaders of the church, the last member of the church, the function of the church, the sacraments of the church, the discipline of the church, the authority of the church, the ministry of the church, everything. Paul taught extensively on this. So we can think in terms of what is a healthy church? A healthy church is a church that is absolutely committed to the authority of the Word of God. We can say that. I can preach that. That's kind of a softball for preachers, right? But it's indispensable, non-negotiable. It's not automatic. Uh, It's not something that just happens. We have to labor towards this. We have to determine, resolve to be a church that is not only founded on the Word of God, but believes in the sufficiency of the Word of God, which means if the Word of God is sufficient, we never leave it. We never get away from it. The church never becomes about something else. It always becomes, Lord willing, 20 years from today, whether myself or somebody else, you come back into this church, Lord willing, it will still look like this. Open your Bibles to book such and such, to chapter such and such, and verse such and such, and now we can begin. It's got to start there, always. Look at this. Verse 13. Remember, this is one of the highlights of the whole letter and both letters, really. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You want the work, you want the product, first you have to make the commitment to the Word of God, and you have to have the right view of the Word of God. The Word of God is the Word that came through divine revelation, and it came through the apostles, through the prophets. That's what the Word of God is. The Word of God is not the Apocrypha, as the Catholics say, in Council of Trent, 16th century, the Catholics said 13 new books added to the canon of Scripture. These two are now to be considered inspired, authoritative for the church. Wrong. Not only that. You feel sorry for the last 1,500 years of the church? They didn't have all those books. No. Neither tradition no, nor the ramblings of some pope that needs to get dressed why is he got to dress like... Anyway, I'm just... you ever wondered, like, why can't he just dress like a normal... Anyway, whatever. Thinks he's a priest back in the order of Zadok or something. It doesn't come from the Catholic Church. It's not sola ecclesia. It's sola scriptura. It's the Word of God is the final authority. It's, uh, it's also not just a qualification. Write this down and think about this. It's also not solo e- scriptura. Solo scriptura means the Bible only, which means Christians, if we want to learn about theology and grow in our faith and faith and practice, we only go to Scripture. That's not what the Reformers meant. They actually condemned solo scriptura. No, no, we can learn from the writings of other men and councils and, and creeds and confessions. There's nothing wrong with that. We can take all that into account, but when it comes to the absolute final authority for faith and practice for the church, for the faith, for Christianity, it is only found in the revealed Word of God. And how do you know that it's the revealed Word of God? It performs its work in you. It has the power to transform your life. Praise God. So it's a total commitment to the Word, first of all. Second of all, I also want to say it's a commitment to the leadership of the church. Uh, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I recognize now that most of my teaching here today is going to be out of 1 Thessalonians. That's okay. A little kind of walk down memory lane here a little bit. <laughs> because this first letter was so foundational. And I, I base this commitment to the leadership of the church in in, in sort of having an a, a insight into the relationship of Paul and the church. You remember this precious section of Scripture, beginning in verse 8. He says here, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Now, you must understand, we don't have a reference in First and Second Thessalonians to the pastors of First and Second Thessalonians. We don't have a reference to them, or the deacons, like we do with... Um, Philippians, the elders and deacons of Philippi, okay? We don't have that here. And one of the reasons why, and that shouldn't surprise us, is because uh, this church and its founding, the pastor of the church was Paul. (laughs) And it was Paul's companions, and so they occupied the role of a pastor, of an elder, of an overseer, until, like it says in, uh, in the book of Acts, I think it's in chapter 14, until they installed a plurality of elders in every city. But until that happened, these churches, like Thessalonians and Colossae and all these churches, these were in their infant stages. They were in a transitionary mode. You see what I'm saying? They were were founded by apostles, and then they were were handed over to qualified men to lead the church. But here, we can see that Paul's bond with this church was a healthy bond. A healthy, what we could call an over-under relationship of leader and member, pastor and member, shepherd and the sheep. And... uh, the book of Hebrews has much to say about this. In Hebrews, yep, in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 17, the Apostle Paul would obviously agree lockstep with this, especially if he wrote this. Many, many of you believe that based on nothing but in a precious, uh, a precious uh, sort of uh, evangelical faith, but that's okay. I, I think I'm with you, I think. It's possible that Paul wrote Hebrews, but more importantly, what is written in Hebrews? Verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those that will give in account. I mean, that's exactly what's going on in Thessalonians. So a lot of times people, you know, I encounter people and I meet them and they claim to be Christians and then I ask them, well, who's your pastor? Ah, uh, well, I've had everything from, oh, what's his name? huh? (laughs) To, well, we're just kind of searching right now. We haven't been looking. How long have you been looking? About three years. You're still looking for a pastor after three years? I mean, you're not living in Papua New Guinea or anything. I mean, you're in America. There is a plethora of pastors. Or as one young man told me at Lowe's, he says, I don't like pastors. I told him, oh, sorry to hear that. I'm a pastor. (laughs) I won't tell you what his face looked like after I said that. But. And it's true, some people don't like pastors. But if you're a Christian, you don't have a choice. Sorry, you're stuck. You've got to have a pastor. You, gotta have a, a, you have to have pastors to submit to, to obey them in the Lord. Why? Because they keep watch over your souls as those that have to give an account. That's why they have to hunt you down. That's why they have to keep you accountable. That's why they have to know how you're doing spiritually. That's how, how come they're concerned and worried that are you getting this? Are you learning this? Are you studying this with us? Are you with us? Because you've got to remember, I've got to give an account for all this. And therefore, the gravity of that should be twofold. You should sense the gravity of that even as I do, even as pastors do. He says, let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And what is that telling us there? What it's telling us is that ecclesiology works best when pastors and people are united, when we have unity, when there is that bond of affection, when there is that relationship that is authentic, sincere, rooted, and grounded in love and grace. I can go on and on about this. Also, there's also a commitment to the body of Christ. How did they do this? How were they committed to the body of Christ? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The way that they were committed to the body of Christ, first of all, was that they lived an exemplary Christian life. They sought to be not just a not just a, a, a church, Not just a biblical church that holds to the right things. They wanted to be an exemplary church. They wanted to be a church that functioned in such a way that others could look in and want to model their lives after this church. And that's what Heritage Grace should always be. We should seek to be exemplary from top to bottom every way. They were a fruitful church because we already learned the Word of God was performing its work in them and they were assisting the Apostle Paul in the, the, the furtherance of the gospel. They were even persecuted for their faith. They ministered the gospel under great persecution and therefore this church was really committed to one another because even through the thick and thin of persecution, they did not abandon each other in the time of need. It's like what John says in 1 John chapter 3 where he talks about If you see your brother in need and you don't help your brother, I mean the love of God is not in you. So we have to rise to one another's aid. And then also it was a healthy church, a biblical church, an exemplary church because it was a loving church. Look at uh, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning in verse 9. We saw this, but Paul encourages the church here to... Grow in their love for one another. He says, now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Uh, Understand that phrase right there, taught by God. That phrase is indicative of regeneration. How are you taught by God? It's not just by reading the Bible. Uh, There is a spiritual tautology, if you would. Uh, The moment you become a Christian, it's kind of axiomatic, right? It's kind of like you become a Christian, you love Christians. <laughs> it's like you don't even need to teach that. You just know by virtue of the joy of salvation that you that you love those who are saved. And therefore Paul can say, you are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was that general region in which the Thessalonian church fell. He says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. I like that because what that tells us is that for Paul here, in order to have a healthy church, you can't have a church that just settles. You can't get comfortable. You can't get complacent. But you have to excel. You you have to have progress going on, individually and corporately. Now, those are some of the uh, highlights of the theology of these letters. But there's one more theological section left, and it's a neglected theological section because it's his parting greeting. Look back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, kind of his closing greetings to this church. There's a whole sermon here, but I decided to kind of go backwards before I go to this ending of the, of the letter here. But there is an entire sermon just here. So you get two sermons today, really. These are Paul's parting words. Should we read it again? It says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant to you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, the structure of this greeting here can be broken down in a Christological or really more in a Christ-centered, Christocentric fashion because every section of this greeting here is focused on Christ. Uh, We have here given to us, the peace of Christ, what we could call, the presence of Christ, and finally the grace of Christ. First, of course, is the peace of Christ. He says, may the Lord himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Now, what I'm saying is that that Lord there is a reference to Jesus uh, as it is Pretty much the consensus. Also, the Lord be with you all is also a reference to Jesus. Pretty much consistently in the New Testament with kurios is used, it is almost always referring to Jesus unless stipulated otherwise. And so here, Paul is saying, may the peace of Christ be with you. That's what he's saying. Now let's think about the peace of Christ here. Number one, This peace is available to us. That's very important. Almost kind of goes without saying, but not really. It's important for us to remember that the peace of Jesus Christ is something that is continually available to us. And therefore, what that means is that in in reality, this this first gift, peace, sort of elicits another gift, which is faith. Can I have access to the peace of Christ if you don't by faith enter into the peace of Christ as it were? Believe and trust and have confidence in the peace that Christ gives. And therefore, you and I, brothers and sisters, we can know that when we commune with Christ, when we fellowship with Christ, whether in worship, in prayer, in the privacy of our own heart, and in the recesses of our own mind, in our own thoughts, and even practically, externally, the way that we love and worship and fellowship with the body of Christ, we can know that we can experience the peace that comes from the Lord of peace. Jesus Christ, earlier in Thessalonians he mentions the God of peace, which there it is referring to the Father. So notice that. It's like Jesus shares a title with the Father, God of peace, Lord of peace. Just an interesting side note on a passage that deals with the deity of the Son. But such it is that we are granted this peace. And the second thing to notice is not only is it available to us, but Kind of like, when is it available? Jesus' peace is available to us at all times. He says, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant to you peace in every circumstance. Now, this is an interesting phrase. And it's, it's worth talking about because it, it, it's, it, it really ministers to us if we understand it, what he's talking about. And when I say we understand it, we need to understand there's a little bit more in the original uh, text, the original Greek text, when he says... Uh, continually in every circumstance. It's actually a double prepositional phrase. diapontas and ponti tropo. What it means is literally through everything, in every way. That's interesting, right? Through everything and in every way. That's a literal translation, I guess, uh, of what he's saying there. So what is he saying? What he's saying is that no matter when we need it, And no matter what we need it for, in every way, the peace of Jesus Christ is available to us. That is if we believe it. If we will stop and acknowledge it. If we will, by faith, embrace it, put our hope in it. Then, as Paul says in Philippians, the peace of God will that surpasses all understanding, will rule our hearts in Christ Jesus. But it's not just the peace. It's almost like if that's good enough, if we can have access to the peace of Jesus, it's more than that because Paul even goes into the presence of Jesus. The peace of Jesus is just an extension of his presence because he says, the Lord be with you all. Now that's phenomenal because not only is he saying... That the presence of Jesus ought to be with us, but notice also the comprehensive corporate aspect of this presence. It's you, as in uh, plural, uh, that the Lord be with all of you, in a sense. And how is the Lord with us? Three ways. Number one, He is present mystically, meaning it's an old Puritan way of saying spiritually. Uh, mystically means He is with us through salvation, through regeneration, through the indwelling of His Spirit. By residing in us, dwelling within our hearts, Jesus is with us. But He's also present providentially. And the reason I decided to focus on the providential presence of Jesus is because this church was you know, persecuted, suffering, scared, small. Uh, it wasn't a mega church. This is probably a little house church somewhere, okay? They needed to know is Jesus with us in our life? <laughs> you gotta remember, this little church, by virtue of their identity in Jesus Christ, just became a pariah in society. They were outcasts, they weren't wanted, they weren't popular, they weren't accepted. And therefore, they wanna know does, is Jesus sovereign? Is Jesus intimate, eminent? in our affairs does he care about us in other words and by him saying here the lord be with you all it shows jesus presence providentially sovereignly governing our affairs caring and providing and protecting his people and then he's also present practically practically he, through his spirit ministering to us his peace and his grace what about that grace Brings us to the very last thing. He says here, The Lord be with you all. And then in verse 18, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, of course, before he says that, he makes a qualification, doesn't he? He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. And when he says, This is the way I write, I think what he's referring to is verse 18. Uh, this became the customary greeting on behalf of the apostle Paul to all his letters. What was the customary greeting? The word grace. In other words, uh, back in this culture, the way that it was typically the, the way that you typically ended a letter was with the word Karen, meaning greetings. Uh, kind of like a farewell greeting. Paul changed that, he Christianized that, he gospelized that by changing the term karen to karis, grace. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing because that is the dominant thing, isn't it? That takes our greetings and our interactions and our sentimentalities and all of our, you know, all the ways that we conversate. It's no longer just a shallow greeting. Now we're talking about sovereign divine grace And that is the greatest thing that we could ever sort of, in a sense, impart to one another, desire for one another, is the grace of God to be at work in our lives. It wasn't a shallow, sentimental greeting. Absolutely not. It was not surface level. It wasn't like the social transactions in our world today with all of the plastic smiles and cheap formalities. The Apostle Paul here is invoking the saving grace of God in our lives with this simple greeting. It reminds us also the grace of God, that anything good in us comes from the grace of God. It comes from the Father of lights, rooted in God's grace. And therefore, even as He comforts them with the peace of Christ and encourages them with the presence of Christ, He leaves them with the grace of Christ. And notice notice first here that the grace of God is is a gift that is communicated to the creature by the Creator. In other words, brothers and sisters, grace is a divine gift. It's not something we give to each other. Grace is a divine gift. And it comes from a divine source, who is Jesus Christ. He is the source. That's where grace is found. It's found in His person. It's found in His redemption. And second, and in keeping with the nature of grace, the grace of Jesus Christ provides us the context for the whole church. He says here, grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I love that, brothers and sisters, because what that means is that we are all on a level playing field, as it were. There are no super Christians. There are no hyper spiritual people. There are just Christians. That's it. Never forget. John MacArthur, this is way back before some of your guys' time, he would appear on Larry King Live. You guys remember Larry King? Some of you guys? And Larry King kept pressing John MacArthur and he kept asking him, John, if you could be anything you could be in this life, what would you want to be? He said, uh, I'd want to be a Christian. He said, Yeah, I know that, but, but what would you want to be? <laughs> John MacArthur says in typical Johnny Mac fashion, uh, a Christian. And that's right. Think about it. If you are a Christian, you have access to all of the saving benefits that come from Jesus Christ. You have access to everything that is sort of foreordained for us. I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places given to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, so that we are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. And by grace, God will bring us into His everlasting kingdom. It is from start to finish. Everything is by grace. If we learn, brothers and sisters, that we are the byproducts, our whole church, both individually and corporately, collectively, we will be reminded that our church exists by the grace of God. And if it exists by the grace of God, then we cannot become prideful. If it exists by grace, then doctrine shouldn't puff us up. It should push us down into the dust to remind us that we're just clay pots with treasure inside. The grace of God reminds us we can't be legalistic because not a single one of us can earn even one rung on the ladder of righteousness before God. It's by grace. We can't become cold. We can't become lukewarm. We can't become stagnant. You know what the grace of God teaches us to do? It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's what the grace of God teaches us to do. In other words, grace does not produce antinomianism. It doesn't make us sort of lawless people, sort of back off, sort of stand off from the things of God. If anything else, it's the complete opposite. The grace of God teaches us to press in, to press harder, to work out with fear and with trembling. The grace of Jesus reminds us that everything that we have is owing not to our own righteousness or goodness or merit, but solely because of the good pleasure of divine grace and love that was poured out upon us through Jesus Christ. And that's what this church has to always come back to. Never leave it. It never becomes old. In all of our theology, that truth of divine sovereign grace upon which we build everything never loses its importance ever. It just deepens the importance. That's all. Amen? Okay, we're done. Grace to you grace to you all let's pray father lord it is your grace that we need we need the grace of our lord jesus and lord we confess to you that it's only because of your grace that we will ever meditate that we will ever remind ourselves and not lose sight of the glorious things that these letters have taught us the eschatology the ecclesiology the sanctification and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the gifts that you've given us, Lord, as a church. We thank you that we have your word, that we can go through a book like Thessalonians, and we pray that it would go through us, that it would penetrate into the depth of our heart, and that we would apply it by the power of your Spirit. Not legalistically, Lord, as we've seen, but born out of gratitude born out of a heart that loves you and wants to be with you and wants to be with your people and wants to live for your glory, we ask that your grace, your presence, and your peace, the grace, the presence, and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ would dominate our hearts and dominate our church. In Jesus' name, amen.